the 45th President of the United States of America, Donald J. Trump. People are so frustrated in this country. Free speech under fire. They're bringing drugs. How desperate the left has become. How desperate Democrats have become. become. They're bringing crime. Dissolution of the country. They're rapists. Sever the ties that unite us as a nation. With the challenges and crises that we face right now, this is not the time to divide this country. Hey, y'all. I'm Avery Shivers. I'm Tahi Wiggins. And I'm Denzel Mitchell. And welcome to Main Street Speaks, a podcast that discusses rural news, politics, and history from the perspective of three college students from the northern neck of Virginia. was a clip from a community meeting between the Northumberland County Sheriff and members of the public about how to improve community police relations in the area. We'll be talking about that meeting and more today in our conversation about policing and race relations in light of the murder of George Floyd and the countless protests and calls for reform that have been occurring on the Northern Neck and across the country. But first, let's take a quick recap of the week's news. Yeah, so up first, you may be familiar with the protests and calls to take down the statue of Confederate General Robert E. Lee on Richmond's Monument Avenue. Virginia Governor Ralph Northam said that the statue would be taken down, but the Richmond Times-Dispatch is reporting that a Richmond judge granted an injunction, which is delaying these plans. But how did this injunction come about, you ask? A lawsuit filed by a man named William C. Gregory. He's the great-grandson of two signatories, of an 1890 deed that gave the state of Virginia control over the statue. Mr. Gregory claims that this deed means that Virginia should consider the Lee statue, quote, sacred, and that they should, quote, faithfully guard it and affectionately protect it. Now, this injunction signifies an obstacle in the Virginia efforts that have really become a symbol of the nationwide and worldwide effort to take down the statues of Confederate and racist historical figures. In more local news, Marcel Jones was recently sworn in as the juvenile court judge for the 15th Judicial District, which includes Northumberland County. He is a graduate of Northumberland County, and there is also another graduate of Northumberland County on the 15th Judicial Circuit, and that is Judge McKinney. Uh, Marcel Jones, he graduated in 1996, which was also the year that he he helped Northumberland High School win the state basketball championship. Uh, He is a graduate of the University of Richmond and Howard Law School, which is a great law school. Uh, And I wish him all the best. And I hope that, you know, he does a great job. Uh, I think I'm a little bit biased, but I think I know he'll do a great job. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. Uh, hopefully none of us will have to see him in juvenile court. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit too old, though. Yeah, we? I guess so. We've got to watch out for our kids. Yeah. <laughs> no. All right. Finally, in regards to the coronavirus crisis, um, Kermarnock has moved to phase two of reopening with town hall open for walk-ins. Uh, but unfortunately for the kiddos out there, the splash pad at the town center is still closed. 
Just devastating. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> devastating. Um, and social distancing measures will still apply, and masks are also continue to be required per the governor's executive order 63. Um, for all of you guys out there, masks will be available at the town hall for those that do not have them. So, guys, please do that. Uh, like we said, walk-ins are available, um, and the masks are there for free. So that is a perk of living in a small local town. You can just run up in the town hall and get your masks for free. So please do that to stay safe. Um, and that's everything we have for local news, and uh, on to the topic for today. Yes, and the topic for today is, like we said earlier, policing and race relations. Um, in the light... In light of the murder of George Floyd. George Floyd, as you know, was, was killed on in Minneapolis, Minnesota on May 25th. And uh, he was killed because Officer Derek Chauvin, who has been charged with second-degree murder, held his knee on Mr. Floyd's neck for 8 minutes and 46 seconds while Mr. Floyd called out uh, that Mr. Floyd said that he couldn't breathe and called out for his mother. That was a very horrible video. You've probably seen it. And... You know, because of this video, the whole country and really the whole world has started to speak out, uh, make their feelings heard about, make their feelings known about racism, um, not only in policing, but also just in every aspect of our society. Um, and some of those protests and calls for reform and calls for action have even reached the northern nick of Virginia, which is something that I never would have thought would, would happen. Um, you know, we're a small area. We don't talk about these things as much. But clearly, clearly people have grievances and have things to say. Um, so what do you guys think about the whole situation and the protests and calls for reform that have followed? Yeah, I mean, like you said, Denzel, um, this, this moment is a little bit different than um, the countless others that we've seen in the past because there has been such a public uprising um, you know, calling out racism, uh, systemic racism and police brutality. And, um, you know, part of that difference is seen here in this really, really rural area. We've nevertheless had multiple marches. Um, so there was one in Kilmarnock uh, a couple Sundays ago. It was organized by black activists. It was, um, you know, a, a variety of people coming out with Black Lives Matter signs and T-shirts. And um, there were black activists who were really given the, the stage and the figurative podium um, and some really fantastic speakers. And Denzel, I believe you went to one in Gloucester, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I went to one in Gloucester. Uh, a little different in terms of demographics. There was actually many, many uh, Caucasian, white American people there, and uh, actually a lot of older people too. I was walking behind a lady in the march who was uh, who had a walker, and she put her sign <laughs> on her walker. Uh, I believe it said Black Lives Matter or something along those lines, and and she was out there uh, making her feelings known too. And the speakers who who spoke at the march, um, you know, Caucasian and African American, um, just spoke about. How how, you know, more than anything, we need some type of conciliation. Uh, we need some type of understanding uh, within a community that there are problems that need to be addressed and um, we need to work together to address them. So, yeah, well, you've been to some yeah. process too, Avery, yeah, right? as yeah. well. Yeah, so I, I've been out of town for the past two weeks. I was in Charlottesville um, with uh, friends protesting as well and also earlier this week in Richmond. Um, and yeah, I think the most, you know, the most, the most inspiring thing that I've seen of this is just the, the breadth at which 
these uh, demonstrations and protests are occurring um, on a world scale, really. Um, and even more so, a, a larger call for action uh, as well. So, I'm, I, yeah, I, I think that it's interesting having this conversation. I'm happy we were able to sit down today and, and talk about this in relation to our, our community here in the Northern Neck. Yeah. Yeah. And this, you know, it's not just all protests, actually. Um, in Northumberland County, the, the sheriff held a meeting on Sunday, June 7th, um, between him and his staff and then members of the public. And Denzel and I were there, and there were a few really interesting takeaways from that meeting. So you can listen to one of those in this clip. We have very little training on culture diversity. It's, it's two hours yeah, and so what we heard there was the sheriff discussing this quote-unquote cultural diversity training, which, you know, takes place two hours every two years, which, you know, he admits is not that much. You can hear the reaction from the audience about that. Um, and he really didn't talk that much about this this phrase implicit bias. Um, you know, and Denzel actually asked him point blank whether during these trainings he had heard the word implicit bias. So Denzel, could you tell us why you think that's important? Yeah. So, you know, just implicit bias is essentially... You know, we're born into this world, and unfortunately, people of a certain demographic are—they have labels painted on them. So, uh, you know, whether it's whether it's you know people of certain genders, people of certain religions, people of certain races, uh, whether it's through media or how people, I guess, perceive those people, um, perceive people of different demographics when you know when they're spoken about or whatever it may be, uh, they're. It's kind of put into their head that this is how a person of a certain demographic should act. For example, some people think African Americans tend to be more violent. Or uh, another example would be women. Uh, when women speak out, um, they're seen to be. They some people see them as too overbearing. Uh, you know, too much of a of a diva or or something along <laughs> those lines. Um, so, and these are things, and they're implicit biases because there's things that we don't seek out the things that are put in our head and you know we're not really aware of them until you know something occurs and we apply them to a situation and in an instance of police officers um that situation could be deadly um you know some of the implicit bias training that some sheriff's department sheriff departments do and you know i asked the sheriff if they do these trainings and he said no they don't currently but it's something he's interested in doing and the training's Basically, essentially what they are is they they look at reaction time, or at least one of the trainings, they look at reaction time for shooting an individual um, who is black and shooting an individual who is white. And they have found that officers are much, much more likely and they're much more quicker um, with shooting an individual who is African-American or of a darker complexion. And they try to, what they after they, I guess, uh, make that implicit bias known to the officers or the officers that have that implicit bias after they're aware of it, they try to help them to get rid of that bias in some way um, through, you know, various different types of trainings. Um, like I said, unfortunately, Northumberland County Sheriff's um, don't officer, sheriff's officers don't do this. Um, but also, like I said, the sheriff um, said that it's something that he would look into. And I think it would be something that would be good for the community, especially community with uh 
you know, many African Americans, uh, you know, and people of color. They're not a majority, but there are enough um, to where this training would be helpful. Yeah, but I think like for the decades that this has been going on, um, implicit bias has implicit bias training has been one of the greatest reforms um, within the American policing system. And, and honestly, after hearing that, after hearing that it's you know two hours over two years of cultural diversity training, um, it's upsetting to see how. Um, in this way as well, uh, local police departments have fallen behind um, in regards to the national statistics, in regards to implicit bias training for their stations and for their officers. So, you know, I think that Denzel and Tahi um, going to that and, and asking those questions and pushing for these reforms and other community organizers who have done the same is really important. Yeah. Yeah. So the the clip that you heard at the top where the sheriff said, you know, there's nothing wrong with aiming for 50 percent diversity kind of comes to this second main issue that we're going to talk about today. And that's diversity within the police staff in general. Um, Now, just for reference, Northumberland County is about a quarter black. um, And, you know, you heard the sheriff call for 50 percent diversity. And so, you know, I mean, that's that's great, I think. But you have to wonder where that number came from. You know, was was that just something that he kind of pulled out of thin air? Is that something that he's willing to make actionable steps to achieve? Um, And also this this idea of, quote unquote, diversity, you know, we heard it with the cultural diversity training and then, you know, 50 percent diversity. Like, I think it's important that we kind of critically look at that word and what it means when it's actually applied to scenarios like this. Mm. Um, But if we listen to this clip, we can hear that it's not only about, um, you know, hiring diverse people, quote unquote, diverse people. It's actually about recruiting them as well. In my campaign last year, what I want to do is reach out to community leaders, especially those, you know, the, the black community, because we have a, a terrible time recruiting good people of color, and, and, and not just black, you know, Asians, stuff like that, to, to have a diverse, a more diverse sheriff's office. So what do you guys think of that? Well, yeah, I think that it is it's very interesting because... You know, I think this happens to a lot of whether it's a company, business, uh, whether it's you know school, probably less mm-hmm. with colleges, probably less with colleges. But if it's any institution, you know, they do, you know, people really do point out if there's a lack of diversity. But um, especially in a small area like this, mm-hmm. and especially with policing, which is something that um, you know minorities tend to not only be, I guess you could say not only be afraid of, in a sense, because, you know, they don't have great interactions, but not interested in as a, as a career. Um, and it may be because of them being afraid. Um, so it's, it's interesting to see that they don't they just don't have people wanting to be officers. And, and maybe, you know, mm-hmm. maybe that could be addressed by better community policing relations. That was something that was definitely suggested. Um, better community policing relations, not only in the sense of officers handling situations better where people don't have to be scared, but also in the sense of officers, you know, going out of the community and showing how policing can be good and how, and reaching out to young people, especially because you don't have to go to college to do something like this, but you can still build a great career within your, within your community if you don't want to leave home immediately or at all. Um, So I think, and those were, those were topics that were were brought up. Um, You know, how can we make policing seem like a profession that people can go into to help people? And Mm. I think it's going to take both of those things. Yeah. That's a that's a yeah. really interesting point, and like we also speak about this overall as well. It's not just 
you know, some advocates would say it's not about who's in the system. It's about um, reforming the system itself. Um, and a lot of critics, um, you know, question whether or not even having amount of diversity in police departments would make the difference that uh, we as a nation, as we as a community would like to see. Um, and that's how you get larger conversations about um, defunding of the police and uh, other conversations about massive reform in regards to police departments. Um, and I think we as a group can, have already kind of decided that that's a, a larger conversation we'd like to have on another day. Yeah, so I'm stay clarify. tuned. Yeah, stay tuned <laughs> for that. All right, so now on to the responses from our uh, state and federal representatives. Congressman Whitman, who is the congressman for the 1st Congressional District, which includes the Northern Neck, goes down to the Hampton Roads area and as far up as Stafford County in Northern Virginia. Uh, he had a response, and this is a response from his Twitter. Uh, the first thing he says, you know, he cannot pretend to know the experience um, because he of African Americans and people of color in America because he is a white man. Um, he then goes on to say that we need to be positive and, and calling for action and positive in our protesting. And, of course, he goes on to say he mourns the death of George Floyd and the other black Americans who have tragically died um, in the hands of police officers. And another interesting thing from Whitman, um, this past Monday on June 8th at a rally, uh, he attended a rally in Montrose, Virginia, and he was asked by someone, uh, actually the, one of the people who are in the primary, Democratic primary now, seeking to challenge him for his seat. He was asked if Black Lives Matter, um, and he wouldn't say it, but then someone in the crowd yelled out the same question, and then he said, yes, Black Lives Matter. So that has been the extent of his response. I believe he also has put together some sort of task force um, bringing together a community, African-American community leaders to address racial inequities. Um, that task force has just started, so nothing has really came of it yet. Um, I look forward to seeing if something does. What do you guys think about Rob Whitman's response? Yeah. Um, there's like a few things that are like, I find like, you know, relatively interesting about it. Like to begin, I feel like he did like the status quo of like, recognizing, oh, I'm a white man, <laughs> like, oh, this is bad, what's happening around the country. Um, and, you know, while it's not my personal experience, we can claim out the injustice in it, um, which is like, okay, good job for you as, like, the status quo meaning that. Um, one thing that I do find, like, a bit upsetting is that in one of his tweets he said, uh, we must condemn the atrocities that have sparked this outrage while peacefully and safely demonstrating we cannot react to violence with violence. Um, and I find that like really interesting because, you know, there's a misconception about the protests um, that have majority been peaceful um, and that the only reason that they've sparked into larger civil unrest is um, due to violent reactions and violent police tactics. Um, and so this is a this, I think, is, you know, part of the agenda for maybe part of the Republican Party. Um, or part of the misconception about these protests is that these protests have majority been very peaceful. Um, but in regards to um, in regards to the police presence and the police responses um, are really what have triggered a lot of the outrage um, and the looting and other destruction of property that we've seen in the past few weeks. Yeah, I think also one thing I just want to touch upon before we move on is 
Um, he mentions, quote, we must bring full justice for our black communities through all of our systems of government, creating real positive and lasting change to our nation. Now, that sounds like the way to address this issue is through policy. And, oh, it just so happens that there is being a policy brought in the House of Representatives <laughs> where the congressman serves. So I think it would be really interesting if some of these statements that he's making, some of these uh, more demonstrative actions will actually result mm. in a vote in favor of this legislation. Um, you know, obviously it's, it's brought by Democrats, so it'll be interesting if he is willing to cross the aisle to support um, legislation such as this. Yeah. And, yeah. like, yeah, even more so, like, I feel like he was <laughs> – the fact of the matter is he, like, really had to be pressured to say Black Lives Matter. <laughs> I feel like that in and of itself, like, you know, I think we were talking about this earlier, and it's like he didn't want to say it because it seems too political. Like, this is not a political issue. It's a human issue. And his, you know, his hesitancy to say, oh, Black Lives Do Matter with pride – and with a passion for the for justice, um, kind of I think reflects you know maybe his tendency to be fearful of you know jumping on the liberal quote unquote democratic side of things. Yeah, yeah I would definitely give him the benefit of the doubt and say that. Well, you know, I would, and, and what I mean by that is that like his supporters on the you know on the Republican side, you mm -hmm. know what I mean, is if he they've been taught whether it's through media or like the republicans themselves that black lives matter is is, is a political thing and like yeah, they've been taught yeah, that it's like like it they've taught they've been taught that yeah. it's in contrast to blue lives matter which is a really big thing right yeah can of, we just pause for a minute sorry to interrupt you, you but can it. we just explain this these two phrases black lives matter blue lives matter and then also the sort of counter phrase all lives matter yeah because um, i think you know like when you just hear black lives matter you're um, if you don't know the context around it, you may be yeah. prompted to think that it was a little off. And, you know, I actually at the, the protest that we discussed earlier, the one of the speakers made a really great analogy, uh, which was, you know, if I, of course, all the bones in my body matter, but if I break my arm, you know, that's the one I'm going to focus on. If there's, <laughs> you know, if you have a neighborhood of houses and one of them is on fire, you know, you're going to, you're going to spray water at the one that's on fire. Of course, all the, all the houses matter, but it doesn't make sense to spray water at a house that's not that's not on fire. Mm, and yeah. so we see in our society that black lives are under threat, both through systemic racism, discrimination, and also these more um, overt actions like police brutality. And so the Black Lives Matter movement and that slogan is saying, you know, we need to focus on the black lives right now because those are the ones that are under siege. And yeah. so Blue Lives Matter, that, of course, refers to um, police, police lives. And then All Lives Matter is sort of the the um, counter slogan to that Black Lives Matter. Um, and yes, of course, All Lives Matter. But, you know, saying that sort of discounts the fact that black lives are systematically discriminated against. Yeah, so, yeah. that's a good a quick, point of yeah. clarification. That most yeah. definitely. I think that that maybe you should broadcast that. Well, I guess we're technically we're doing it now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we need to continue to broadcast yeah. that. But I think just people get stuck in echo chambers and they hear these things as as if they're against each other. But no, all lives matter. Uh, officers' lives matter. Blue lives do matter, and black lives matter. Yeah. But um, you know, these protesters are protesting for black lives that have been yeah. taken. So another, just George Floyd. Yeah. Another thing that I feel like is like a, the best like analogy is like, or just simplification of it it's not black versus white it's not 
you know, uh, one racial group against another. It's mm-hmm. all racial groups, uh, all people who are seeking justice against racism, against uh, systematic inequalities. Um, so it's it's not. It, I think a lot of the time the the agenda goes and the the, the media coverage kind of ties it in as this black versus white dilemma when it's mm. in reality it's all humans versus racism yeah um and i think, that's, really um, and I think that's that's kind of the another easy simplification to to kind of weigh in on yeah yeah cool. even even uh mitt romney figured that one out yeah <laughs> surprising <laughs> but yeah yeah well done all right all right Delegate so wins. moving on to um if you live in the same area we do, which is the Northern Neck, you are represented. You are represented in the Virginia House of Delegates by Margaret Ranson, who is the representative for the 99th district, which is the Northern Neck. Um, and as for her response, there was not one. <laughs> and that is all we can really say on the matter. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think just with with Margaret. So, like you know, you know, this is probably going to be a biased statement because I've worked for the man who's ran against yeah. Delegate Ransom mm-hmm. for the past two election cycles, Francis Edwards, if you're not familiar with him. Um, yeah, he's a Democrat. And, you know, I work with him. I knocked on doors, you know, hundreds hundreds of doors around the county. And the biggest thing is, like, this isn't unusual for Delegate Ransom. Like, mm-hmm. people are wondering, people are always wondering, like, first of all, who is Delegate Ransom? Yeah. <laughs> second of all, like, where is, where is and her also, response? And Ransom's, like, seafood, is that the same family? Like, yes. <laughs> It actually, it actually is. So more people know know her family through that. Through the business, it's like it's business. like Branson's like it's like either like yeah. it's lawn care or like seafood. Yeah, the, like, the name has a yeah. That's all we have here. Yeah. Yeah. So like, and it, it's a it's like a constantly occurring thing. Like I said, it's an ongoing thing that, and you know, I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's because uh, the people who support her aren't exactly paying attention to these issues. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's because. I don't know if she's caught up in other issues or whatever it may be. You know, I try to give people the benefit of the doubt. Um, but, yeah. Yeah, I think we can we can compare this to some past statements that she's made about the uh, the Equal Rights Amendment and her refusal to support it um, and her, her reasoning for that. And I don't bring this up to, like, blast her, I promise. I think it's a, a good way to compare. The reason that she didn't support the Equal Rights Amendment, which um, was a proposed constitutional amendment that said... Um, essentially women and men should be treated equally. Um, She said that she would not support that because she herself had never experienced discrimination because of Mm. her gender. Mm. And I think this is really important. You know, she's a woman. She didn't support the Equal Rights Amendment because her own experience didn't support it. And yet she, you know, represents this diverse group of people, men, women, and, you know, some women likely have been discriminated against because of their gender, just like you know, African-Americans and other people of color mm-hmm. likely have been discriminated against because of the color of their skin. Yeah. And so, you know, her refusal to support this may be based on personal reasons that, you know, she's never been discriminated against because of the color of her skin or that's not something she's ever seen. Um, hmm. But it just goes directly contrary to the idea that she is a representative the for a larger group of yeah. exactly yeah, for yeah. a larger group of people. Yeah. Well, Delegate Ranson. If you want to come on our show, we can give you a little platform <laughs> to speak out, and maybe we can get some audience members behind it, too. Um, all right, and then to our uh, final one, uh, State Senator Ryan McDougal, who represents the 4th Senate District in Virginia, which covers the Middle Peninsula, part of the Northern Neck, and west into Hanover County. Um, his response um, was primarily in 
signing on to a statement by Senate Republican leadership um, regarding Governor Northam's announcement regarding the Lee statue. Um, so kind of not really in relation to the Black Lives Matter movement or any stance for solidarity, uh, but more so a uh, statement, and this is what it read. The governor's decision to remove the Lee statue from Monument Avenue is not in the best interests of Virginia. Attempts to eradicate instead of contextualizing history invariably fail. And because of this governor's personal history, the motivations of this decision will always be suspect. Like Senator Chase's idiotic, inappropriate, and inflammatory response, his decision is more likely to further divide, not unite Virginians. And so this was McDougal's. This is the most we've heard from Ryan McDougal um, in the past couple of weeks regarding these issues. Again, focusing on Robert E. Lee statue and standing behind that monument um, and the glorification of that history uh, rather than approaching the um, Black Lives Matter movement or the protests um, around the state of Virginia. Mm-hmm. Um, Tahi Denzel, do you guys have any thoughts on this response? Yeah. Well, the first thing I want to say is for all these representatives, if you are listening to the show or happen to come across <laughs> it, there's still time for you to not only speak out but to do something because you're in a position that a lot of people aren't. You actually have power to create legislation, vote on legislation, pass legislation yes. um, that can actually you know help change, help you know address this issue. So please, there's there's always time to speak out. We you know some people would like it sooner rather than later, but. Don't let that stop you from making some sort of action. Mm. But I think that, you know, Senator McDougal's lack of response and then him signing on the, to this letter really, you know, it, it's it's really expected. Because, like, like, as you can see, this is from the Senate Republican leadership. And there's always a way, like, they always are looking to frame an issue a certain way for campaign purposes, for purposes of, uh, you know, gaining yeah. power in the Senate or wherever it may be. Um, so, you know, it's hard to cre- critique something that's, that's so expected. Uh, but I don't know. What do you, what do you think, Sai? Well, you know, I think, you know, we, we describe this as the quote unquote response to the, you know, protests, um, against racism and against police brutality. But like, I think calling them that is calling this letter that is giving them a bit more credit than they deserve. Like this is a response to the attempt to take down a statue. Like, it's not any substantive statement on systematic racism and discrimination. Mm. Um, You know, and again, it's not an individual response either. It's a a letter that Senator McDougal signed on to. So hopefully we'll see something a little bit more more serious and more substantive in the coming days, as Denzel suggested. Yeah. Again, one last thing for Senator McDougal. Love to have you on this show. Give you a little platform again, <laughs> yeah. but um, also recognize the the constituency and the constituents that you represent. Um, you know, first sentence you say taking it down is not in the best interests of Virginia or Virginia citizens. What citizens do you do you you know? Mm. What citizens yeah. are you referring to in yeah. this statement? Yeah, you know, and I think that's a really good point because I think for many of us sitting here, a lot of the young people who are in the streets protesting, uh, trying to remove these statues, um, we're asking who, whose interests are you trying to represent? Uh, and if you're not representing ours, then, you know, we're going to get registered to vote. And I think that, you know, the fourth district uh, can show up to the voting polls and, and try and make it their own decision. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah, so speaking of that, we have um, a couple final thoughts for you.
So yeah, so the primary elections are on June 23rd. They're ca- they're happening across the country, uh, but in this area, as far as I know, there's going to be the Democratic Congressional District One primary uh, between Vanjie Williams, who ran as the Democratic nominee last time, and Qasem Rashid, who actually just finished. Uh, unfortunately, he lost uh, election in the. The, I think it was, I believe it was the 28th Senate District, which is in the Northern Virginia Spotsylvania area. Uh, so they'll be running against each other in a Democratic primary, and then in the Republican U.S. Senate primary, I believe there are two or maybe three candidates who are vying to run against uh, our current U.S. Senator Mark Warner. Uh, so please, 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 um, if you want to make your voice heard, uh, go out to vote in those primaries and. Uh, and there's an interesting story why. So, Tahi, do you want to explain that story? So this is an interesting anecdote about why um, why primaries are important because a lot of people just sort of write them off as, you know, like not the real election. Um, and it's about a man named Denver Riggleman, who was the congressional representative for the 5th District of Virginia, which includes Charlottesville, where we actually all go to school at UVA. Now, um, this man was a Republican senator. He offici- excuse me, a Republican representative, and he recently officiated a gay wedding, which um, came under criticism um, from you know some of the Republican community and some of his Republican constituents. And he was actually beaten in the Republican primary uh, by a further right candidate named Bob Good. And you know, I think. This, this really goes to show why primaries are important, because the, you know, semi-moderate Republican candidate has been replaced by somebody who's, you know, further right than him in his own party. And that doesn't just matter to the Republican Party. It also matters to the general electorate who will be, you know, voting between Bob Good and whoever the, uh, excuse me, the Democratic uh, mm-hmm. candidate will be. Yeah. And, you know, I think that that uh, like when you look at the way they set up the primary, it, they actually set it up in more of a convention style. So I think technically it would be called a con- it should be called a convention, but mm-hmm. they they put it, they had everyone had to come into this one area. I believe it was Bedford, Virginia, and and this this congressional district it stretches from close to D.C. all the way down to the North Carolina border. So some people had to drive two to three hours just just to go vote, and mm-hmm. it, you know it drew up the most ardent. Republicans in this mm-hmm. case, and then if it was Democrats, it would draw out the most ardent Democrats. People were willing to do this, yeah. and that's you know that's why Bob Good probably won this, and it was probably set up that way. Unfortunately, for for Demo Ringelman, but for the Democrats, you know Bob Good is like is someone who doesn't support gay marriage. He is very far to the right. He's not as centrist as Demo Ringelman. That may actually be a good thing because the the rating for the election went from you know I think I believe it went from strong Republican now only to only lean Republican because um, you know this is a more centrist moderate district. So that mm-hmm. may be good for the Democrats, but it's unfortunate for Demo Ringelman the way it was set up. Right. But, yeah. yeah right. What, do you, what do you think, Avery? Yeah. Overall, I just think you know uh, partisan politics. Isn't as uh, isn't as significant in these local primary elections, you know, as we see here within the own party, Denver Riggleman and Bob Good fighting for that one spot, um, and so it just shows the significance of primary elections. Despite where you stand in the party, just go out and vote, um, exercise that right, um, and those are just like the two things to keep in mind uh, as we close out this little podcast for today. Um, again, remember June twenty third um, is the date for the Democratic 
Congressional District 1 primary um, and the Republican U.S. Senate primary as well. Those are the two things you're going to see on the ballot. Um, and that's everything from us today. Um, this is Main Street Speaks. And thank you for listening. Um, I am Avery Shivers. I'm Tahi Wiggins. And I'm Denzel Mitchell. And we'll see you next episode. <laughs>